This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble Union Square, please give a warm welcome for number one New York Times bestselling author Jeanette Wells and Poured Over producer and host Mewa Messer. New York and hello those of you who are joining us virtually. Um, we are also taping for the Port Over podcast so I just want to remind you that we are actually videotaping and we're audio taping and we're doing all sorts of great stuff. It is my great good fortune to be on a stage with Jeanette Walls. <laughs> and, and also this is going to be a really fun conversation. If you gave us a question when you registered on Eventbrite, I have those questions. If you gave us an index card and put questions on it, I have those too. So we will get to them, I promise. I don't actually hold questions until the end of the show. I like to work them in as we go because it's way more interesting for all of us. I will say some of you were reading my mind, so just be prepared. There's a little bit of overlap between you guys and me. But more importantly, Jeanette, I'm so excited to see you. Hang the Moon is our new BNN book club selection for April. Thank you. It is very, very good. It is on sale today. We are going spoiler-free in this conversation because I had all of the pleasure reading this, and I am not going to ruin it for you. <laughs> so, <laughs> just want to warn you, if you do want to join the book club discussion, that's May 2nd. There are details on bn.com. We will be spoiling everything to the rooftops and back. But tonight, we're going to talk about some different stuff. So this is where I get to ask you how you found your voice. It took a while. Yeah. It, it took a while. I'm embarrassed to admit, but I, I will, um, that there were 17 versions of this book. Yeah, and yeah I heard that. Yeah. It wasn't until I went into uh, first person present mm -hmm. that it, it kind of clicked for me. Right. I like writing about scrappy, tough girls. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of write, you write what you know, right? Yeah. So um, it was also very important for me to be authentic and to try to get my head inside somebody who lived 100 years ago was a challenge. Mm -hmm. I think that often we read historical books and they, found, they sound very contemporary or they sound very um, stilted. Yieldy, timey, languagey. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to avoid that. Right. And, and there was a lot of slang from the era mm -hmm. that I tried out and it just, it felt, I felt it took the reader out of the moment. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to be kind of timeless. I didn't want to be contemporary mm -hmm. or old fashioned. So it, it, it took a while, but as soon as I found her, with the great help of my, my fabulous editor, Nan Graham, mm -hmm. who, who is here, really the book would not have happened without her because I think, you know, you, you, you get so close to this stuff, you have no idea whether it's any good or not. And I'm a fast writer, but I'm sloppy. And I just, I, I write down whatever comes into my head and I look at it, this is just awful. So I just have to keep on rewriting and rewriting. Okay, but where do the short chapters come in? Because you fly through this book. Yeah, I mean, a lot yeah. happens. Yeah. A lot yeah. of good stuff, a lot of bad stuff. A lot happens. But your chapters are maybe three to five pages. I mean, it's there were, what, 50-something chapters in this book? Yeah, I have a short attention span. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> there you go. Because it's very cinematic. <laughs> yes, thank you. I've been told that. Once I put it in first person present, mm -hmm. I, I, and this will sound so flaky, but I could actually kind of see it. I hope this doesn't sound like I'm name dropping, but sitting on the set of the movie of Making the Glass Castle, right? it was just, it was very informative for me mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. character. Yep. The actors there were so passionate about authenticity, about understanding these crazy people who are my family members. 
and they would ask such brilliant and straightforward questions about, mm-hmm. you know, what did your dad, Woody, Woody Harrelson, what did your dad do with his hands when he talked to you? That kind of thing. And I one time I was on a panel with Lisa DeGeneres and somebody asked her who, who wrote Still Alice. Somebody mm-hmm. asked her, what was the best fiction writing advice anybody ever gave you? And she said, take an acting class. At the time, I thought it was stupid. I was like, what does that have to do with anything? But then when I, I, I went full-fledged into mm-hmm. fiction, which in a way, Hang the Moon is my first fully, fully fictional right, book, right, right. Um, even though a lot of it is based on historical events. But I get it now. I get it because you have to understand these people you're writing about. Mm-hmm. You have to get inside your head. So watching, I, I was sitting down with Brie Larson, who played mm-hmm. me in, in The Glass Castle. Right. And she's, she's kind of subdued and low-key. But we were talking for about a half an hour and I, I, she gets kind of loud and like kind of gesturing and weird with this loud, weird mm-hmm. laugh. And then I realized, oh, she's doing me. <laughs> you know, she completely transformed herself. And my, my jaw just dropped. Like, how did she do that? Right. And I think, I think fiction writing is an act of empathy. Mm-hmm. And it's putting yourself inside somebody else's shoes and, and, and inside their mind. And what would this person do in these circumstances? And so that's what I was trying to do. And again, please forgive me if I sound at all laudy da, but it was just trying to understand this woman who lived a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. what would she do in these situations and trying to put yourself into that world? Lived a hundred years ago under pretty remarkable circumstances yeah. though. And yeah. you currently live in a corner of Virginia that yeah. is pretty close to where this book is set. Would yeah. you set that yeah. Up for us and let us know what that landscape looks like, because I think yeah. that's a really important part of Hang the Moon. Yeah, I live in um, Orange, Virginia, which it's it's right at the uh, foot of the Blue Ridge Mountains. So it's, it's you know, there's the plateau on one side and the mountains on the other. And Virginia is very, the flat parts were settled by the Blue Bloods, and then the Scots-Irish went to the mountains. So it's it's very kind of divided sociologically. But in addition to that, the further west you get, the kind of wilder it gets. I love where I live, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's very contradictory place. It's very, a lot of social divide. Um, it's a constant inspiration for mm-hmm. writing. Let's just say I stole a lot for this book. I, I just, uh, what was going on around me and the small, t- the, you know, these small towns, they all have the big man in town mm-hmm. who controls everything. Right. And that, that was, that was the sort of thing that I, I put into this book. I get stealing a little bit of that kind of thing, but also the way you write about isolation and the dangers of isolation and sort of exile within a community. Yeah. yeah I yeah, mean, yeah. Sally Kincaid has a moment where she's kicked out of her family. Yeah. Yeah. Her dad makes a, you know, he makes a decision that works for him and works for the new wife and, <laughs> oh, there's a kid. Right. So right. kid gets sent into exile yeah. with yeah. her aunt in the mountains. Right. right. You know, this book is like, it's about, there's a lot of moonshining. There's a lot of shooting and driving around mm-hmm. fast. But at its heart, it's about family. Mm-hmm. It's about how we fit into family and how we right. how how we define ourselves and how other people define us. Sally was a she was a tomboy and mm-hmm. she adored her her mm-hmm. hard drinking, bossy, overbearing father and wanted to be just like him. And then she got kicked out and um, brought back into the family right before she turned eighteen mm-hmm. and believed in the family mythology that being a Kincaid meant you were special and different. And in some ways that helped her get through some tough times. Mm-hmm. In another way, it blinded her to the things going on, the, the dilemmas that other people experienced. Right. So here we are. You've had a memoir that sat on top of the bestseller list for 461 weeks. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much the only response you can have. Thank you. 
You wrote a novel ostensibly about your grandmother and let's call it the Wild West because, I yeah. mean, come on, Half Broke Horses, great story. And then we go to California in the 70s and we've got a couple of little girls and a mom who may or may not feel slightly familiar. And now here we are with Sally Kincaid mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in 1920s Virginia and lots of stuff happens. But I want to talk about giving voice to women because you're taking these women who don't necessarily get to tell their stories, right? If we look at the right. history books, right, right. yeah, we've got Laura Ingalls, you know, digging the dirt right. house and all that. I was desperate for a sod house when I was a child and my parents were not <laughs> going to let me do it. You too. Oh, totally, totally. And my mother was like, no, no, what are you doing? Get out of the dirt. I'm like, but we don't tell these stories. We don't let yeah. women and girls tell the pieces in between, right? Right, right. And here you are across all of your books, whether memoir or fiction, this is what you're doing. Do you feel a responsibility to your audience when you're doing this or do you just really no, want to tell no, the story? I no, I don't okay. feel responsibility. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm not that <laughs> I'm not that conscientious. I just, I just write what interests me and, okay. you, and you write what you know. I mean, I've, people say, you write about strong women. I'm like, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's the only kind of, I like stories about tough people during tough times. Right. I like stories about survival. Mm -hmm. How do you get through these really, I'm not so good with existential angst. I've mm -hmm. never, that's not my forte. Right. It's, it's more just sort of like fighting for your life. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, it, it fascinates me. And, um, I, I think, you know, people have said, gosh, you're so strong and you're so tough. We're all stronger and tougher mm -hmm. than we realize. Right. It's just that some of us are lucky enough to have been tested and know how, how tough we are. And I think that Sally's being exiled mm -hmm. from her family um, and then coming back. And she does, she, she does okay when she comes back. She's not perfect. She's far from perfect. But I think her being exiled, she succeeds not in spite of the difficulties she went through, but because mm -hmm. of them, I think it taught right. her toughness and humility on some level, maybe not quite enough humility, but it just, it taught her to, um, to understand that the people on the other side of the tracks have a tough time as well. So I firmly believe that everything in life is about the blessing and a curse. And you can like turn over the worst thing in the world and find something wonderful about it. Right. And you can feel sorry for yourself about mm -hmm. all these awful things that happened to you, or you put a harness on your demons and put them to work for you. And that's, that's kind of my philosophy in life. It's like, look, people have said that I could feel sorry for myself or angry mm -hmm. with my parents because of whatever. What good would that do? I think I'm the luckiest person in the world. I really do. I mean, my parents didn't give me everything, but they gave me great copy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Lucky readers. <laughs> Lucky readers. Part of why I want to bring back this idea of women's stories, right, and telling women's stories, yeah. which, you know, we still don't always no, don't. get right, you know, even now, I mean, yeah. your books are all playing with this idea of an American mythology, right? The American yes. dream, yes. where yes. we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to aspire to, this, this idea of, in some ways, respectability. I mean, yes. that's all over the new book, Hang the Moon. I mean, yes. who's respectable, who's not? Who decides who's respectable? Yes. Ew. Yes. Um, it makes for great reading, but ew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's talk about blowing up the American dream for a second. Yeah. You know, I mean, the book was set 100 years ago, and I, was, mm -hmm. I, and, and I spent a lot of time reading newspapers from that period. Right. I thought, 
I thought I was going to fall completely in love with the 1920s and want to go back there and uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. As bad as things are, they've gotten better, okay? Yeah. And, and there was just so much attention to this notion of respectability and others, the other people. And, and one of the things, Prohibition is very much at the center of this book, and Prohibition was kind of a nativist movement. It was, it was a woman's movement as well, but it was people saying, family is important. Let's get back to the good times like it used to be. There was some pressure, uh, you know, the, the idea of the crazy Germans coming over with their beer and the crazy Italians coming over with all their wine. You know, let's make America great like it used to be. Sound familiar? It was a time of incredible pressure and divisiveness. And with women, they had taken on men's jobs during the First World War, and then they had to let go of those jobs once the men came back. So it's very much a story about, like, what role do we play Mm -hmm. in society and in our own lives? So Mm -hmm. I wanted Sally to be figuring out the same, you know, Sally's going through that same struggle against the backdrop of a country that is trying to figure out where it's going. And it was a very dark time in so many ways. It was so racist. It was so misogynistic in so many ways. And it was just accepted that Mm -hmm. that was, that was the way as crazy as times are right now with the internet and everything. I think it's hard to imagine a hundred years ago when electricity and automobiles were becoming available to people for the first time for the masses and just the incredible anxiety and nervousness about this new technology. Mm-hmm. I, I read an obituary by a man who liked to brag that he had not set foot ever in a train or a, a streetcar or an automobile. These things were a threat to the American way of life right. to some people. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, America was urbanizing. So there was this astonishing pressure. What kind of country are we going to be? How do we define ourselves? What does it mean to be an American? And that's kind of what prohibition was on some level. Mm -hmm. There was also a genuine belief that if they could outlaw liquor, that crime would disappear. The, you know, (laughs) no, it was the articles and the, the sermons of the time. It's fascinating to read them because Mm -hmm. people actually believe this. We can eliminate liquor. We will eliminate crime. We can close the jails. We'll use this money to educate people. It was this utopian ideal. It was a complete and utter disaster, a crime wave like we'd never seen before. The price of liquor went up and the quality went down, you know, and drinking actually increased. So it was, you know, it was a well-intended law in a way, Mm -hmm. Um, but it was also uh, the law of unintended consequences. What happens when you try to control people's behavior? Now, of course, laws are supposed to control people's behavior. Right. But what happens when you try to take people's choices away from them? You know, this idea that we can make our own fortunes and that we can make our own way and that we can make our own world, that is so much part of this American mythology. It's also part of your family's mythology. If we look at your grandmother, I mean, certainly if we look at your parents, but let's go back to your grandmother for a second. Let's go back to Lily and half-broke horses for a second. I mean, talk about making your own work. 15, she gets on the back of a horse and says, I'm going to go teach because I don't have an option. I mean, this is like really deep-seated American mythology is the creation of the West. It's making yourself, right. it's making a life. And, you know, yes, she gets married and does a little bootlegging and does a little breaking of horses and all of this good stuff. But she's never quite what we might think of as a traditional grandmotherly type, right? She always oh, gets no. to keep herself. She gets to keep herself. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. Sally does to yeah. a certain extent. There are other women in Hang the Moon who do not get to keep themselves. No. But I'm dancing around this whole idea of mythology, whether it's your family's mythology or our country's mythology. 
because you brought in an element of story that I was pleasantly surprised by, but I have to ask, and this really isn't a spoiler, because I promise you, a bunch of you are gonna figure it out as soon as you start reading, because I was like, wait a minute, what? Henry Tudor and some of his family members may be a little bit of background to this book. Can we talk about this for a second? Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have long been fascinated by the story of Elizabeth I. My parents would get into screaming arguments about Elizabeth. My, my mother hated her and my father defended her. My older sister was born on her birthday okay. and over-identified with her. Mm -hmm. um, but I've always found it a really fascinating story of this woman who she was expected to go nowhere. She was mm -hmm. expected to be nothing. And um, by some bizarre set of circumstances, she ended up heading um, the family business, which happened to be running the country, and did a fabulous job. So right. I, I was fascinated by that. And I was reading one time, I was reading a biography of her, and I was thinking, this is so white trash, you know, because they're all marrying cousins <laughs> and killing each other and doing all these tricks. And I was like, why don't you take this story, which a lot of people, a lot of Americans don't, their parents didn't fight. Not everybody's right, parents right, right. fought over, over Elizabeth. So a lot no. of people aren't familiar <laughs> with this story, which shocks me, but it's this great story of survival against the odds mm -hmm. of being underestimated and, and refusing to be pigeonholed. So I thought, why don't you take this basic nuts and bolts of this story and put it in somewhat modern America? And it was my husband who suggested prohibition because you need some place where people can kill each other with random. So <laughs> I, I, I hesitate to mention the background because I see people, sometimes I see people's eyes glazing over when they hear tutors like, oh no, it's a history lesson. But I love history. I love history. I think you know, he who ignores history is doomed to repeat it. But beyond that, I've heard this expression. I love it. It's been attributed to Mark Twain, but he didn't mm -hmm. say that. Uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. We keep on going through these same, we have to keep on learning these same lessons about identity and all that. I love the story of, of this woman who survives mm -hmm. and, and prospers against all odds, but at a great price. That being said, this is not a retelling of Elizabeth oh, I. Oh, it's no, not. No, it a, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> this is also the reason that it took 17 drafts okay. because a very early version was. A couple of early versions were where it's sort of like, okay, West Virginia is Scotland. Okay, you know, where I was just matching right. up one against one. And Sally had to become her own person. It's one thing mm -hmm. to be arrogant and high-handed if you're the monarch of England. It's mm -hmm. another to be arrogant and high-handed if you're a bootlegger. So I had, to, I had to make her her own person. I'm fascinated by this journey of this woman who made it against all odds and the price she paid. So that's, that's kind of the, the basic structure of it. We've got all of these moving parts you know, these women and their voices and the decisions they make and this community that may or may not be prepared for the decisions these women are yes, making. Yes. And I'm talking across all of the books, mind you. Like, okay. I really, yeah. like, not just hang them. And yes, we are sort of focusing on this, but if you've read all of the books, you know exactly what I'm doing right here. I see heads nodding in the back. <laughs> You're working with these incredibly complicated characters. And in some cases, you're working off of inspiration from whatever is in front of you, family stories, what have you. But when do you know that you found the emotional truth of what you're wow. trying to do? Because it's wow. not the same as just being able yeah. to tell the story and hit the points and hit the yeah. beats, right? Yeah. Yeah. When do you know you have the thing? I mean, in this case, it took you 17 drafts, yeah. but... Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, and especially when you're taking things from real history, which I did, a lot of these characters are based on 
people who were around during prohibition, you're putting all these pieces together, some from inspiration, some that are out there. And sometimes you end up with this like Frankenstein looking creature with the legs are too long and it just doesn't fit. And you read it like this just is kind of bad, you know? So I don't know. Um, and that's why I have a fabulous editor. Um, and she tells me, okay, you got it. But, but there, there is a point that sometimes you're like, I think this works. I think this, right. this feels true. This sounds true. Right. Okay. You've described yourself in the past though as being pathologically independent. And does yeah. that change now? I mean, you've worked with Nan on four books now. Yeah. I yeah. mean, your husband, you've thanked him for millions of story points yeah, yeah. in different places. And it sounds like you don't get to be pathologically independent anymore when you're creating these worlds. You, you know, my husband has this good line about, mm -hmm. about writing. He said that um, you have to have faith in yourself and mm -hmm. question yourself at the same time. Mm -hmm. it's, this, it's this funny balance. But I right. guess that's true in, in all of life, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You have to have faith, but you have to question yourself. And you have to constantly say, is this any good? And you have to be able to criticize yourself or take other people's criticism. You have to. I don't want compliments when I'm writing. I want mm -hmm. somebody to tell me this, this doesn't work. I don't want to be embarrassed because, you know, you can be. I mean, you put your, your stuff out there. I'd rather have somebody say, uh-uh, go back, do it again. Everyone needs an editor. Everyone even, needs an I editor. mean, even Everyone. when it's just tiny bits of copy, everyone yeah. needs an editor. Yes. You have also talked about in the past feeling more secure writing nonfiction because everything was sort of laid out yeah. in the details, <laughs> right? The truth is in the details. And yet here you are, the last three books, Yeah, yeah. you get further and further yeah. away from, I mean, I know Half Broke Horses was, what did we call it? A, a true life novel. True life novel. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Which I had never heard before. And I, and I understand exactly what that subtitle means, but are you finally at a point where you don't necessarily need to lean on the details of a thing to be able to find the truth of what you're trying to do? I thought I would never write fiction. Okay. I thought I would, I, and, and for years I said about myself and believed, I do not make things up. Mm -hmm. I have no imagination. Half Broke Horses was as close to the truth as I could get it. Okay. My mother told about her mother, and I have no idea how much of it is true, so I called it fiction. But in addition to that, I wrote it first person, but I, it was as close as I could get it. Mm -hmm. Silver Star is cobbled together from things yeah. I knew. I think it was for Silver Star, and I kept on saying, I don't make things up. I'm, 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 I, I was on a book tour, kind of like this, and I said, I, I have no imagination. I don't make things up. And a gentleman in the front row, he raised his hand and very gently told me, he said, I think you have a fabulous imagination. You're just afraid of your own creativity. And it just about knocked mm -hmm. my socks off because I think he's right. He was onto something. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it a whole lot because both of my parents had a relationship of convenience with the truth. <laughs> <laughs> and my father had a bunch of characters in his head that he would trot out whenever he needed. Mm. And my mother would just, she was just out there. I mean, she wasn't well, she was kind of a liar, but she just, she just made things up all the time. Right. And I just, I think I sought out the truth. The truth will set you free. It was the answers were in the truth. The, the, it, it was there. It was only thanks to that gentleman that I, I, I realized, I think I can go a little bit further in right. this direction. And I'd been thinking about this story for a while and thought I'd, I'd give it a shake. And um, most of the incidents in Hang the Moon are... are inspired by true life mm -hmm. events that happened mm -hmm. during prohibition. Right. Originally I clung to it too tight 
and my fabulous editor name, Graham, had to pull my long bony fingers off the facts and said, <laughs> you have to make this your own. Make these people your own. Right. And that, that was quite a transition for me. But she was absolutely right. Once, once I kind of just mm-hmm. relaxed and tried to see things as this fictional character who I'd created, I was able to make things up which is kind of like lying, but it's not. Oh, it's not. Come on. But it's it's not. not. You're just telling a story. So when I was trying to cram it too hard into, to take these facts Mm -hmm. and cram it into this fictional book, it just, it wasn't working. And I had to take out pieces of what really happened and make it my own. And and that, Mm -hmm. that was, it was a little shocking for me that you can do that and not be struck by lightning. But I, (laughs) I, I I did kind of get there and I was like, oh, oh, this is what they call fiction. Okay. Mm -hmm. I I get it. And it's kind of scary because you can go in any direction. It's like navigating in the ocean. You can go there, you can go there, you can go there. So you don't have the facts to guide you. And that's where your whole question about like, well, you know, I mean, if it really happened, then I don't have to worry about, could this happen? But when you're writing, when you're writing fiction, you have to say, is this believable? Does this feel true? Does this feel right? right? Does this feel true to this character? Would they do this? I'm going to grab a question from the audience for a second. Having written fiction and nonfiction, which is easier to express your own voice or the voice of a fictional character? And you've sort of answered it, but not entirely, which yeah. is why I'm asking the question. I find nonfiction easier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but fiction more potentially powerful because you can, you can manipulate it and move it around a little. But I do feel that most fiction, at least the kind of fiction I'm drawn to, is deeply rooted in truth and what's out there. Are you reading for character first or are you reading for language first? Interesting. Character. Yeah. Character, okay. I think. Because that's yeah. what it feels like yeah. from yeah. reading you. Yeah. But, I mean, you could argue that voice is the thing that swings the hardest out of each of your books. Like, there's a voice, there's a distinct yeah. voice to each of the books. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, well, is voice its own character? That's interesting. I think that, you know, if you don't, if you don't have the voice, it's just not going to work, period. Right. But the characters, they have to feel real. You just have mm-hmm. to kind of know these yeah. people. Those are kind of the, the building blocks. And then right. the language, I mean, it can be really bad at first. And you just mm-hmm. keep on going through it over and over again and, and, and make it feel. I also read all of my books aloud once I finish them. Yeah, okay. I was wondering about that because they fly. I mean, just the narrative <laughs> thrust of all of your books. It's wild how quickly... Uh, you can turn the pages. And I don't mean in sort of the psychological thriller sense of I need to know who did it, but it is kind of like, wait a minute, I didn't even realize I'd gone that far well, that you. quickly. Thank you. I try to make it kind of conversational. I'm yeah. not, I'm not, I'm not interested in, you know, I mean, God bless those writers who do these long, complicated right. sentences. I'm just, I'm not, that's not me. When it comes to craft, though, and we've had multiple questions from both the online audience and Eventbrite and all of that, when it comes to craft, do you have sort of a specific discipline that keeps you in your seat and writing, as it oh, were? Or? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm obsessive. I'm just like, I'm kind of okay. nutty. I'm just kind of like, I just, I want to get back to the mm-hmm. computer as soon as I can. Okay. I, it's the first thing I think about every morning and the last thing I think about at night, I just... I want to get to these people and make and work this darn thing out. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this book took me, depending on when you want to say, I started. I, I was eight years, right? Um, and but I just wanted to get Sally's story out. Okay. I grew to really like Sally. I, I really she's grew. Great. To, well, she's I you great. know she's kind of flawed. She's not perfect, 
but I, I really grew to care about her and mm-hmm. just wanted her to, now I'm talking like a crazy person but, <laughs> about this person who I made up, but I just, I cared about her mm-hmm. and, and her ridiculous story and her, and her flaws and her blinders and how she, mm-hmm. you know, she's not a bad person, but she right. does some bad things and makes some really bad decisions. But it, it was a tough time. And, you know, and what would you do to resolve this, mm-hmm. this, this stupid story and, and tell it and get it out there mm-hmm. and get it done. But I sit down in the morning and like I said, I'm a fast but sloppy reader. And then you go through it again and go yep. through it again. And just sort of like, does this work? Does this work? I mean, I read somewhere that at one point you and your husband were acting out problem points in the book because it was the only way to figure out what had gone wrong. If, if somebody's dialogue, especially Sally's, yeah, yeah. didn't feel right, my husband would play the other character and I'd be Sally. And he'd say, you know, just, just say what comes to mind. Don't right. think it out. So like, you know, he'd play the Duke. And I'm like, well, I'm going to send you to work. I'm like, I don't want to. Blah, blah, blah. And so I just write that down. The only problem with that mm-hmm. is that sometimes I kept on using these mid-century curse words. And so I'd have to take those out. I found this great resource. Mm-hmm. It's Green's Dictionary of Slang. And I realized that all of my curse words come from like, it's post-GI curse words. Can I say a curse word? You can totally do whatever you want. Dumb ass. It's, 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 a, it's a mid-century curse word in cojones. It was a, that was Hemingway around, I yeah. think it was 1937. So all of this, a lot of this slang, much of slang came around during the 20s. And I was really trying hard to have this book in casual language. The slang from the period made it sound like kind of, oh, 23 skidoo, but you know, like that's yeah, not going to happen. Yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> so I, 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 Sally was a real potty mouth originally, but I ended up taking out most of the curse words. Mm-hmm. And at first it just broke my heart to lose those, but it actually felt more authentic afterwards. Deadwood notwithstanding, I think people didn't curse as much. Then. Yeah, Deadwood is its own special thing. And yeah. actually, that came up in a different interview I did last week. I don't know what's in the <laughs> air with Deadwood right now, but something's going on. No, I think it's true, though. And I do, you know, the danger with historical fiction is I was sort of making fun of it at the top of the show, but this ye olde timey languagey yeah. thing, and yeah. it just rips you right out of the story and your eyes kind of cross. And yeah, yeah. It's just ooh, not yeah. what. I want as a reader. Ditto, ditto. And, and similarly with um, dialect, I made the decision yeah, yeah. not to put stuff in dialect because Sally, this, this story takes place in 1919, 20, around there. She didn't sound funny to herself mm-hmm. in its first person presence. Yeah. So she's not like, you know, I said to them, you know, that being said, it, when I read um, the contemporary newspapers, mm-hmm. they would quote mountain people in dialect. Oh, and, wow. and when you, yeah, yeah. Or, and African-American people, they would quote in dialect. Right. So uh, to me, quoting dialect is very often a tool of otherness. This mm-hmm. is how they sound. You never hear upper class people, you know, like, let's have some day. I mean, they talk, yeah. they sound funny too, but they never quoted it. So I, I made that decision. And I also flicked a couple of times at her, at her thinking that other people sound funny. Because you got to remember at this time, people didn't know what other people sounded like. Because right. you, you, were, you were usually confined to your own county, at least people mm-hmm. like Sally were. Radio wasn't around yet. So, and the, the, the first world war just happened and people came back. It was so fascinating reading these letters from the period about like, I met somebody who had an Italian accent and it was just so, so exotic to them to hear somebody with a, a different accent because people weren't going in and out of these communities. It was just so insular. And this was the period in history when it stopped being that insular. Right. And that's why it was so scary and why people, who looked different and sounded different were exotic and threatening and kind of scary. 
I think part of the appeal, too, of historical fiction is we get to step back and say, well, that wouldn't have been me. And sometimes we're not right when we say that, but yeah. we say it anyway. Yeah. And that is always interesting to me, people's responses yeah. where it's like, well, I would have done it differently. And I'm thinking, not really. If you yeah. get kicked out of your family, kicked off the farm, yeah. kicked out of your community, I it's think not like yeah. you could open a bank account and just right. Right. move. Well, right. That's, you know, that's an interesting point because I wanted to make Sally sympathetic and kind, mm -hmm. but she can't be woke. She can't, and she also can't sound like she just came from some sort of a mm -mm. therapy meeting. I mean, no. she, she's a product of her time and she has to have some of that baggage and some of that uh, obliviousness. Yeah. Shame is not a concept that your characters are clued in on, but wow, do they carry <laughs> a lot of it? Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot, a lot of it. But yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the beauty of stepping into a novel like this, Hang the Moon, and just being able to say, hey, wait a minute. Who are these people? What is this world? I mean, Appalachia is not a place I've spent a lot of time in. Virginia, I've driven through Virginia. Yeah, yeah. I've done the whole DC thing, but DC Virginia is different. Not, different. No, 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 no. That's different. very, very different. Uh, uh, Northern Virginia is yeah, not Virginia. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's exactly it. It's yeah. not. Yeah. Virginia. And there are pockets. There are pockets. A Ooh. place now that yeah. are still very much like, Ooh, yeah. it's not quite the 1920s, but <laughs> oh, I oh, mean, oh, no, it's, but it's, it's real close. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that I sort of felt qualified to write it, even though, you know, I, I mean, it is set a hundred years ago, but I mm -hmm. think that I'm more qualified than many people because I, I grew up largely without indoor plumbing and without electricity. So I mm -hmm. kind of know that world, but also because, because there are people who are kind of stuck in, mm -hmm. in time, you know, they say you, you, you win a battle you forget it pretty quickly. You lose a battle, you never forget. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and these are people who never forget. And they, they're very steeped in their own history. So it's, 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 it's very close. That being said, I did have to put myself back somewhat. What, what, what was it like to go through all of this? Right. And, and the scariness, the, the, the threat and the fear of this mm -hmm. changing world. I mean, this is the jazz era and everybody's sitting around reading Gatsby and Char doing the Charleston and I thought I'd like, I thought I'd kind of fall in love with the period, but you read the newspapers and the most popular movie at the time was Birth of a Nation, which was glorifying the Ku Klux Klan. And because I'm a research nerd, I watched that thing. Ooh. Okay. And my eyes are still burned, got holes mm -hmm. burned in it. And it was just, it was like, wow, yeah. wow. Anybody who wants to get nostalgic, do a little research. Okay. Cause you go back and you look at these times. It was, you know, it was very... Lindbergh made some nasty speeches. He did. He Dude, did. I mean, no. I, I get it. You flew a plane, but at the same yeah. time, wow, yeah. the things and that a, came out of his mouth. Uh-huh. And a lot of the heroes of that period mm -hmm. were that way. A, a very mixed, very mixed bag. So I just think it's very important to remember, you know, oh, simpler, better times, let a, not really. And especially for women, especially for women. And, you know, the automobile was so monumental in changing mm -hmm. people's lives. I think more for, for women than for men. Uh, men could hop on a horse and go somewhere. For right. women, they, especially a lady, you had, to, you had to get in a carriage and carriages were very expensive. You hook up the, the wagon. It, it was not a one person job. Mm -hmm. And it, going into town took all day. It was an all day thing. And washing the clothes, forget it. Even women of not much means hired somebody to wash the clothes. Mm -hmm. So running the household, it was, it was hard and it was dirty and it was strenuous. Technology changed so much of that. And people were really kind of threatened about, well, where are women going in the mm -hmm. world? And that's, you know, Sally, I mean, she was not woke. She was, she would never called herself a feminist, mm -hmm. but she was somebody who just didn't like the role that was right. assigned to her. 
And also, we didn't get to wear pants. We didn't have pockets. No. Like, I mean... No, I'm convinced oh. that women cut their hair short because of cars, because um, most of the automobiles were open, and you were one of those whoop-de-doo pompadours mm. in, in an open car. You know, the, the automobile was huge, and I believe pants and the more reasonable dresses, mm. because you know, those hoop scoots would have never fit into the cars. <laughs> it was a time that, that technology was really re redefining people's lives. Some of the women were really clinging mm -hmm. to the old roles. You know, in fact, prohibition was largely a woman's movement. Oh, I do know that. Yeah. Guy. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot that people are going to get to play with in Hang the Moon. But you're about to be on the road for four to six weeks. It was long. We were talking about this yeah, in the green room yeah. a second ago. But what have you learned from your readers? I mean, you've been doing this book thing since 2005. Yeah, yeah. readers are a lot smarter than I am. I was, okay. some, you know, one time somebody asked me a question, asked me, why did your mother sell that land? Y'all could have had a normal life. And I said, I don't know. And I've asked my mom, I can't get a straight answer. A woman in the audience raises her hand. She said, I know. I said, how do you know? She said, my book club discussed it. So <laughs> and she had a really good answer too. So I, I've never been to therapy. I just hang out with right. book club people. They're really smart, you know. So uh, readers have challenged me, like yeah. the gentleman who, who said, he right, right, right. you know, and, and people will push me on things. I love talking to them. But the, the lesson I have to keep on learning from readers, and it's so, I'll be signing books and there'll be some decked out woman and she's all Neiman Marcus out or something mm -hmm. like that. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. and she'd come over and she'd say, girlfriend, you and I could be sisters. Right. My, you know, my, my right. daddy, my dad, my mom was a cocktail waitress and my daddy was a truck driver, got in the car one day and drove away. And, and it's a lesson I keep on having to learn. Do not judge people, you know, and they, mm -hmm. and they tell me their stories. This young African-American woman I was in, uh, she said, you know, Miss Walls, I'm going to be honest with you. When your book was assigned, she said, I didn't want to read about no West Virginia hillbilly. She said, you know, same line, but girlfriend, you and I could be sisters. And that's what I love about storytelling right. is I think that honesty is contagious. Mm -hmm. And when you, you start telling your stories, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, mm -hmm. it, it encourages other people to tell their stories. A lot of us walk around in armor like I was and, you know, it protects us, but it also isolates you. Mm -hmm. And once you take that armor off, I was unprepared for the kindness and the goodness of people. I was unprepared to be loved and, and understood. And I think that people... They've shocked me with their compassion, and that's why I love storytelling. Has that been the biggest reward for you? Writing? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, far and away. I mean, because yeah. back in the day, I mean, you did the gossip thing before oh, the gossip yeah. thing became, you know, Instagram. <laughs> um, yeah, I was the bonehead who sticks microphones into people's celebrities' faces and asks them who designs their outfits. And I thought, you know, like, mm -hmm. oh, how does it, can't get any better than this, right? You know, but... um you know, I believe the truth will set you free, right. but the truth is complicated. Yeah. And I think we do have to leave space. I mean, you've said this before in other interviews that there are people who love your mom and there are people who yeah. cannot get away from your mother fast enough. Yeah. I mean, that is, yeah. and it's wild to me that we have these responses, right? To people we'll never meet or people yeah. who are fictional characters. I mean, I frequently talk about fictional, I'm a bookseller. I talk about fictional characters like they're sitting next to me. It's not weird. It's my job. <laughs> it's what I do. But the idea that we can actually change the world one story at a time. I, I completely believe that. I, I, and I think, you know, I've just been so fortunate that people read The Glass Castle in schools. Right. It was banned in a um, Dallas suburb. Um, one parent objected to it. Right. And the other parents and the school teachers and God bless them, the students got together. This was a very well-to-do suburb, and they, mm -hmm. said, they said, we need to read stories like this. Yeah. And they invited me to come 
talk. And another author warned me, said, oh, those kids are brats. They're horrible. You're going to hate it. We had the most amazing time. And then here's the PS that's so beautiful. A young student hung back and and said, I want to thank you for that story because I had a similar situation Mm -hmm. and it gave me, your story gave me the courage to tell about my parents, what was going on. And so we, we poor folk have not cornered the market on weird parents. It's this storytelling that is so magical. And I understand why people want to like protect their kids and keep them away from all the bad books out there. But the truth is the way to protect kids, in my opinion, is, is not to isolate them or insulate them, but to give them right. the tools and the, the intelligence and the storytelling and to find the strength within themselves to, to know that they that they can deal with these things and, and discuss these things in the safety of their classrooms and in their houses. And um, I'm, I just think that the, the whole process of storytelling, it brings us so much closer together. Yeah. We all look different. We come from different parts of the world. But beyond the appearances, you know, we all want the same thing. We want respect and security and to be loved. And that's what storytelling does is it it connects the similarities that we have. Do you feel like you've finally been heard? Oh. Yeah. Oh, a long time ago. Okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, no, 35 no. languages for Glass oh, Castle. No, That's oh, not no, nothing. No, but. no. I, 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 I am, I am so lucky. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. you know, and, and like I said, sometimes readers hear me better than I hear myself. Mm-hmm. They will challenge me on something. Oh, you said this, but I'm not sure I agree with you on that. And I love that. I mm-hmm. love that. I love being wrong because that's how you learn. You, you, you like, oh, you're right about that. I was, I was, I'm, I was being too glib or whatever. So yeah, I'm heard and then some, I mean, yeah. kids write papers on my book. They send me, you know, like <laughs> they, uh, you know, they, uh, it's just, it's, it, it, somebody asked me, is this a dream come true for you? I would have to be a crazy person to dream this. I would right. have to be nuts. Right, right. Yeah. So, right. so yeah, it's so far exceeds anything I expected from a raggedy little story. No. Do you know what the next thing is yet? No. Okay. No, no. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessive and I, I'm only good at one thing at a time, I realize. <laughs> uh, that's not unreasonable. I no, mean, I multitasking just, really is overrated. It's I think completely it is. I, well, I don't know if it's overrated. I can't do it. Um, <laughs> I just, I can't think about one, two things at a time. It's just, I've finished Hang the Moon and I need another Jeanette Walls. That's <laughs> <laughs> really, it's pure self-interest. That's straight up. <laughs> anyway, Jeanette Walls, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. Hang the Moon is thank out you. now. Thanks. It's the April Barnes & Noble book club pick. And join us on May 2nd online. You can dial in, I think it's 3 p.m. Eastern. So, thank and then you. we'll do all of the dirt. We will get all of the dirt for it. Thank, thank you. you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.